from PRX, the public radio exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, Jesus is known by many names, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, but our guest wants us to know him by another name, the Rebel Rabbi. We talked to Rabbi Evan Moffick about his new book, What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Jewishness of Jesus. We look back at history and Holy Scripture to help us have this conversation. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Rabbi Evan Moffick. Rabbi Moffick is Senior Rabbi at Congregation Solel in suburban Chicago. He's the author of What Every Christian Needs to Know About Passover, Wisdom for People of All Faiths, and Judaism Demystified. Today we're going to be talking about his most recent book, What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Jewishness of Jesus, A New Way of Seeing the Most Influential Rabbi in History. Rabbi Evan Moffick, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. It's a great honor to be on the show. Thank you. Well, I, I I wanted to start out the conversation with a little bit of context, and the context would be the relationship between uh, Judaism and Christianity for, let's say, two millennia has not always been the, the most friendly one. And I wonder if, uh, to start out the conversation, you could sort of talk about how Jews and Christians have understood one another in the past. Well, you're right. It's been a, um, it's been a tumultuous relationship. Uh, and uh, the, the sad part about it is really they began as, as sister religions, in a sense. You know, in some ways, Judaism is the roots of Christianity, but Judaism also evolved alongside Christianity. And just like any siblings, there's ups and it's downs, and sometimes sibling tensions can be quite great, and, and Judaism and Christianity have had a difficult relationship. But really, the 20th century has marked an absolute turnaround in that relationship for a variety of reasons, some of it very negative, having to do with the Holocaust, uh, some of them very positive, having to do with the rise of, a, of leaders who really were able to speak openly and confidently with those of another faith. So it has been a difficult relationship, but, but it's been one that today has never been better. With that disconnection, I think that there was an awful lot of mistrust on both sides. I have some familiarity with, with the Jewish distrust, and you mentioned the Holocaust, and certainly we can look back at the history of pogroms and other sorts of violence against Jewish communities. But I think that there was also mistrust on, on the Christian side in the sense of a, a lack of familiarity leading to a real sense of otherness. And one of the words that, that often gets used with that is the, is the notion of supersessionism. For our listeners who maybe don't know what this word means, I wonder if you would take a moment and sort of define what supersessionism means in the context that we're discussing. Sure. Yeah, supersessionism is the idea that the new covenant, Jesus providing salvation for humanity, that covenant, that relationship between Jesus and, and the world, God and the world, has superseded, has effectively replaced the old covenant between God and Israel, that it swept it to the side. It's also known as replacement theology. The idea is that the, the relationship between God and the Jewish people, the relationship sealed at Mount Sinai and, and documented in the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, that that has been swept aside, is no longer applicable, and has been replaced, been superseded by this new relationship with, uh, via, through Jesus. The problem with that is that it, it, it just it, it eliminates Judaism, effectively. Uh, one can have covenants that are side by side. It would effectively be like saying, this one marriage between this person and that person has now replaced all other marriages in the world, that they're no longer applicable. But marriages, relationships, can exist side by side with one another. Your marriage is very important to you. My marriage is very important to me. They can coexist side by side. And so supersessionism eliminates all in the name of one 
and that has been a theology that the Church has really, I mean, the Catholic Church most famously in the 1960s, set aside that theology. Uh, it had been a long time coming, but uh, now is really considered, supersessionism is really considered uh, uh, really close to anti-Semitism. As a result of, of this setting aside of this supersessionist theology, and you mentioned the Catholic Church has done it, we, we can see documents from other uh, Protestant Christian faiths that do this as well, and then also scholars, uh, particularly in the last 30 years, some of the, the scholarship that I've worked on and that, that others that I know of have worked on uh, from the Christian side and the Jewish side and also the Muslim side to try and bring a new level of dialogue. One of the things that that resulted in was about 15 years ago, there was a document called Dabru Emet, and, and that document basically said from the Jewish side, hey, we recognize that there's now a difference in the way that you Christians are approaching us, and we want to acknowledge that in a formal way. Uh, and it, it's really that context in which I see kind of what you're trying to do here with this new book, What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Jewishness of Jesus. But I wonder, as we as we sort of talk about, you know, the, the history of this relationship between Judaism and Christianity, let's start to try and, and take that into a context in which you're writing this book. So what, if you were to put into one or two sentences what you're really hoping that this book would communicate to Christians, what what are you trying to do here? I'm trying to bring back the story of Jesus in its original Jewish context. I'm trying to, in a sense, recover the original Jesus as first-century Jews would have understood him. One of one of a, a person that I've become close to in in writing this book is a professor, very highly regarded scholar named Scott McKnight, and uh, he actually helped crystallize that for me. And and now that you mentioned Dabru Emmet and and Jews understanding the evolution within Christianity. This is one of the things Scott, uh, Dr. McKnight, really liked about this book, is that it actually grapples with Christianity and reads Christianity as Christianity, not simply... You know, a lot of people have written about the Jewishness of Jesus. There's some great scholars. But I found that many of their books come with a kind of, here's how I'm going to correct where you have misinterpreted the Gospels, where you have misinterpreted the parables. Here's the right reading. I'm not coming with any kind of agenda like that. I take Christianity on its own terms, how it has understood Jesus, how it has understood the Hebrew Bible, but simply add another layer of Jewishness to the figure of Jesus. Now, why would it be important, particularly for Christians, to add that layer of Jewishness? Well, I think because it's just the way anybody, you know, if the goal of being a good Christian, if, if one of the things of being Christian is to become more like Jesus, to move closer to Jesus, then understanding more about who Jesus was is part of that quest. And Jesus was a Jew. So in a sense, to learn more about Jesus, you have to learn more about Judaism. So that's one of it. It's just a kind of a matter, matter of depth, of, of a deeper faith. The other part of it, I think, is it adds great meaning to how one studies and reads the Gospels. Jews have always been great interpreters of texts. We read texts with great love and focus and depth. And so, in a way, adding those interpretive tools, Jewish interpretive tools, to how we understand the Gospels, it adds, it adds more layers to, to their meaning. It makes one's Bible study deeper. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen, and we're speaking today with Rabbi Evan Moffick about his new book, What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Jewishness of Jesus, a new way of seeing the most influential rabbi in history. When I'm looking at the book, uh, one of the things that jumps out at me at the cover is not only this phrase on the on the front of the cover, uh, the most influential rabbi in history, but as you turn to the back cover, the top of the, the page says, Introducing the Rebel Rabbi. And, <laughs> And I realize that's a good tagline, but I also I also think that kind of speaks to kind of what you're trying to to say in terms of of, of bringing Jesus back into his Jewish context for Christians. But I wonder if you could maybe expand upon that when when you and your publishers classify Jesus as a rebel rabbi. What is it that you're trying to say here? We're trying to say that he was a rabbi, a teacher. You know, that the, the title rabbi during the time of Jesus really simply meant teacher. Uh, and one who had disciples. The idea is that he was a rabbi who had a unique point of view, that he was different from the other rabbis. He was 
in some ways, anti-establishment. Now, he wasn't the only one. Many of the Pharisees, in a sense, were rebels. They were, they were uh, rebelling against the system dominated by the priestly caste, uh, by the, 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 the Sadducees who ran the temple and who were quite corrupt. So we chose to talk about Jesus as a rebel rabbi because he was part of a group of rabbis who were really rebelling against the domination of the priestly caste of the Sadducees, who had become corrupt, whose leadership was bought and sold by Rome, and Jesus was among those who were challenging the, the contemporary structure of Jewish life. Uh, and, and, and the Gospels actually depict that, as does Josephus, as does the Talmud. There were many rabbis who were opposed to the, the, dominant, uh, uh, the, the, the domination of the priesthood. Uh, so uh, one could argue that Jesus was unique among them in, in, in sort of being the basis of a new religion, uh, but there were, there were others who were, who were rebelling as well. But Jesus really didn't intend to start a new religion. Is it safe to say that? It's absolutely accurate, yes. I mean, it's, it's hard to read intent, right? We, we, we don't know what he was thinking, but clearly he lived and died as a Jew, uh, as somebody who was Jewish and felt part of the Jewish people and didn't start a new religion. A new religion started later around him, but, uh, but even, even the, 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 the next generation did not see themselves as part of a new religion. Uh, they saw themselves as, as Jews who, who were followers of Jesus. It wasn't even, I mean, this is one of the great debates in scholarship, is when exactly did Christianity become a separate religion? Uh, that's, a, that's, a hard, that's a hard question to answer, and there are all kinds of different opinions. I mean, there are some scholars that say the split wasn't complete until about 200 CE. Other scholars say it was as early as 50 CE. So this is a, this is a major point of contention. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Rabbi Evan Moffick about his new book, What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Jewishness of Jesus. You can find out more about Evan Moffick and his, and his work at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in a moment. Hey there, listeners. I want to take a moment and tell you about our partner for producing this show, the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. It sounds like an old-timey name, and that's because it's an old-timey organization. They got started in 1908 doing live events here in the Chicago downtown area. In the 1920s, they went coast-to-coast on the radio, and in the 1950s, they started out as one of the first religious television programs anywhere ever. And they're still doing radio and television. In addition to co-producing this program, the Sunday Evening Club makes regular hour-long documentaries for PBS that focus on issues like violence, immigration reform, health care, and more, highlighting the good work being done by faith communities as they try to make these situations better for the people of Chicago. You can find out more about the Sunday Evening Club and watch and listen to all the programs they've been producing for more than 70 years at their website, csec.org. That's csec. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Rabbi Evan Moffick. He's the author of What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Jewishness of Jesus, a new way of seeing the most influential rabbi in history. So, way back in the ancient past, I wrote a master's thesis on Franz Rosenzweig. And one of the the quotations that sticks out in my mind about Rosenzweig, who was raised as a cultural Jew in Germany before the rise of Nazism and had a lot of pressure to convert to Christianity by his friends and by folks in his family who had converted and was sort of uh, deciding, well, maybe I'll become Christian, but before I do that, I need to go through one more very good kind of Jewish experience. Mm -hmm. He goes to a Yom Kippur, and he ends up just completely plunging into Judaism and spends his life establishing Jewish houses of learning around Germany. Uh, But one of the quotations that Rosenzweig says is, you know, he, he meditates on this this notion that that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. You know, no one gets to the Father but by me. And he takes that quotation and he says, "Yes, I will affirm that Jesus is the only way to the Father. It just simply happens to be that Jews are already with the Father." Mm. 
and I don't know if you've ever encountered this statement before, but but I would I would like if you could for you to maybe reflect on how you see that having worked through this book length meditation on Jesus. Mm. It's a beautiful. I, I'd heard that quote before, but I didn't know it was Rosenzweig who said it, and that's fascinating. That part of it is Rosenzweig and you might have talked about this, he romanticizes Judaism a little bit. He is somebody who, coming, being born Jewish but not having grown up understanding Judaism, he, he comes back to it and in some ways understands Judaism as this sort of eternal faith outside of time. And to say Jews are already with the Father very much fits with that sort of understanding he had of Judaism. And uh, that, that, that makes sense. I wouldn't put it myself in such terms. Uh, I would see Judaism and, Christi- and Christianity as both paths to the Father. You know, Jews don't have any inherent superiority or closeness to God over Christianity. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that at all. Uh, what I would say is we have different paths. And one of the things that I've you know, we, we have a lot of church groups that come and visit my synagogue here in Highland Park, and uh, one of the things I talk to them, I, I often will take out a Torah scroll and talk about what it is and, and h- how we study it. And in many ways, for Jews, the Torah serves the same function as Jesus does for Christians. The Torah is our pathway to God. It's how we connect with God and, in a sense, touch God and learn from God here on earth. For Christians, Jesus came down on earth, God incarnate in humanity, and is provided the vehicle by which Christians uh, uh, find grace and salvation and so forth. So Torah, for Jews, is God incarnate in a text, not a person, but God incarnate in a text whereas Jesus for Christianity is God incarnate in a person. So I think that, that we have different paths to the Father. Uh, none of us has sort of a, a fast lane. I like the way that you said that. A second question keys off of that, and, and a contemporary and, a, and a, in many ways a, a sort of colleague of Rosenzweig was, was Martin Buber. And I, I was thinking about Buber earlier in the conversation where you were talking about the notion that that certain rabbis are saying that Jesus was a preliminary Messiah and that he paved the way for the coming Messiah. And in some ways, you use the phrase a failed Messiah. But that makes me think of a, of a quotation that is attributed to Buber that says, if if the Messiah comes back and he is asked, you know, have you been here before, I, w- I will lean in and I will whisper, please don't answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. And, That's I, good. I, and I think that the, the spirit that is there in that is is this notion of, you know, when we're talking about something apocalyptic, when we're talking about the return of of justice and virtue, the the restoration of of things to their proper order in the messianic age, um, we won't want to quibble about these questions about uh, about kind of who has pride of place and those sorts of things. But I wonder, sort of, you know. That's easy for me to say as a Christian, but but I wonder, you know, in, to some extent, how how do you as a rabbi uh, talk about the times that are to come uh, with your congregation, or do you, or is that even part of your theology? Help us to sort of understand how Messiah fits in with, with kind of how you're thinking about things. Well, those are two interesting questions. So on the sort of meta level as, as Jews as a congregation— Jews are suspicious of messianism as, as, a, as an approach to expecting the oncoming of the Messiah, because every time we've engaged in messianism, it's got us in trouble. So, uh, so about 150 years after the life of Jesus, there was a guy named Bar Kokhba, and he proclaimed himself the Messiah and urged Jews to fight the Roman Empire, to revolt again. Many people followed uh, Bar Kokhba, and it led to an absolute bloodbath and destruction, and hundreds of thousands of Jews were killed in 150 CE and were banned from Jerusalem. So this messianism failed. Then 1,600 years later, there was a false messiah by the name of Sabbatai Svi, uh, and uh, his revolt ended up, his, his belief in himself as the messiah ended up uh, 
consuming, spreading like wildfire among Eastern European Jews and, and ended up a, a total failure. Uh, then a like, hundred years later, there was a guy named Jacob Frank who was also a, proclaimed himself the Messiah. So there's any kind of messianism generally is dangerous to, to Judaism. So we don't talk too much about it. On the other hand, traditional Judaism does believe in the eventual coming of a Messiah uh, who will restore peace and justice and humanity. Now, there are different visions of what that messianic age will look like, but there's definitely a feeling that uh, we will, there will come a time in which the kind of history, the, the human history that we have, will, will be replaced by a godly history. Uh, and I believe that myself. Uh, it, I don't think it's going to come any time in my life or in thousands of years, but at some point there will be a, a, a restoration, a return to that to that point of, of harmony and, and, and justice and uh, human brotherhood and so forth. And, and one last point that, that I, I just I found so engaging and, and just learned so much about in, in the book was your, your means of drawing parallels between the work of Jesus, the life of Jesus, and stories that as a Christian I know from from the First Testament and the Second Testament, but then you, you bring them out to me in a new way. And one in particular was all the parallels that you that you drew between Jesus and Joseph, and actually you make it between the Josephs, uh, Joseph, <laughs> Jesus' father, but also Joseph, uh, who, who was in Egypt. But I, I just wonder if you might take a moment and talk about um, the ways in which these kind of parallels and drawing Christians back to stories that they know but with fresh eyes you know, to what extent have, have Christians responded to that and, and found that to be almost a liberating aspect of, of the writing that you're doing? Yeah, it's actually been been great. And, and that's one of the reasons I wrote this book is because there's so much richness in Judaism. And I believe passionately that Judaism is not just for Jews, that Judaism is a rich store of tradition and meaning for humanity. And so sharing these stories these stories rooted in Judaism, but that can shed light and enhance another person's faith and add wisdom to the world as part of my responsibility. So that's been a great joy to see that. <laughs> I had one pastor who, uh, I don't know if this is a compliment or a, or a criticism, but he's like, you know, you're the Jewish version of Rob Bell. You're bringing Judaism into Christianity in a, in a, in, and, and using Judaism to enhance Christianity. He called it the Judaization of Christianity, which I kind of liked, actually. I, I guess I, I took it as a compliment uh, in that I was adding sort of a Jewish layer of depth to some Christian stories. And also, by the way, it enhances, you know, many Jews are as familiar with the Christian stories as they are with the Jewish stories. Uh, and so, uh, especially if they haven't really studied Judaism in depth, that, you know, some of the Christian stories are just part of the larger culture. So they see grow, have a greater appreciation of Judaism. For example, many Jews will know the parable of, of the, uh, uh, the, the prodigal son. Uh, many don't know that there's essentially a Jewish version, slightly different, uh, of the prodigal son in the Talmud. So uh, this kind of drawing these parallels has both, I think, added to the story repertoire of Jews uh, and Christians. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Rabbi Evan Moffick. He's the author of What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Jewishness of Jesus. Well, Rabbi Moffick, you've written What Every Christian Needs to Know About Passover, and now you've written What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Jewishness of Jesus. What are you working on now, and, and are, we, are we to expect a whole another uh, sort of raft of these What Every Christian Needs to Know uh, sorts of books or something else? There will probably be more what every Christian needs to know. My publisher really likes that, that handle. But I've, I also have found my natural voice is, is more towards the inspirational and sort of combining both educational and sermonic material. And I've found I love, in, in Judaism, in the Jewish life today, we don't really have this concept of devotions, which are very popular forms of, of, of Christian writing today. So I have just finished my manuscript for a book of devotionals for Christians, but based on the Torah. And uh, my publisher is very excited about it. The, the tentative title is Shalom for the Heart, uh, 70 Torah-based devotionals for peace of mind. And, uh, and so that, 
that is is something that uh, I think will where I, I sort of take a verse from the Torah and and apply it to uh, to our lives today. So that's in the works. And uh, then following that, I'm I'm working on a proposal for a book about happiness. One of the things that I have found intellectually intriguing and and personally intriguing is the new discoveries in in psychology, which are often put under the label positive psychology or flourishing. And I think basically that these these new psychological discoveries are rooted in ancient traditions. It's in a way our our, uh, religious traditions were ancient instruction manuals for a life of what we now call happiness. They might have called it holiness. They might have had other names for it. But they were trying to discover what it means to live a good life. And so I want to take some of what we've learned uh, from contemporary psychology and bridge it with what our religious traditions have to have to teach. So that's uh, I haven't figured out exactly what the focus of that will be, but that's that's my next project. Well, and I, I'd like to unpack a couple of the the things that you've just talked about. So first of all, you mentioned that you have a a reflection a series of reflections for Christians, but based on on the Torah. Yes. And I have a wide range of listeners, and so when some of my listeners hear that term, they're going to think the Decalogue. They're going to think the Torah is the Jewish word for the Ten Commandments, and others are going to say the Torah is the Jewish word for the five books of Moses given on Sinai from some traditions and others just to say – and then others will say, well, the, the Torah just means the, the Old Testament, what I mean by the Old Testament. When you use that term, what do mm-hmm. you mean? Well, the strict definition would be the five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the Torah uh, uh, as, as, as a literary text. Uh, but the word Torah itself means law, process, teacher. So I take it to mean just generally Jewish teachings. But in the context of this book, it's the five books of Moses. So uh, for this first, you know, this, there's so much there. So this first book is, is sections from Genesis and Exodus, uh, and then the second part of the, the sequel to this book will be Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And are you following any particular type of, of choosing order? Is, are you following any kind of liturgical structure in, in choosing those texts, or are you just going to ones that really uh, speak to you? Well, yes, there is a general structure, and it's based on, on the Jewish lectionary. So, which is, so we have a, a Jewish version of the Christian lectionary. It precedes the Christian lectionary. It's called the Torah portion cycle. So there are uh, several Torah portions uh, that are divided. Uh, the rabbis divided the uh, Torah into uh, into uh, 54 sections, and those sections uh, are read every week. So I am taking uh, different aspects from each section. And uh, the second thing that I want to come back and, and sort of unpack is you mentioned that the, the, the project that you've just proposed is a project that is looking at happiness and sort of drawing happiness back into the ancient wisdom of the Jewish tradition. And, and as you were describing that, it, it rang a bell in my head, and I want, to, I want to sort of follow this with you for a moment. So I know nothing about Hasidism other than what I read in Chaim Potok and some other authors. Um, but one of the ways that I have heard it described is that Hasidism is mystical, but it also is is a is a a branch of Judaism that is trying to regain a sort of joyousness and 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 love of life, and and so I wonder, am I am I am I hearing that correctly in what you're saying, uh, or are you taking this in a different direction than than would sort of lead us through the the Hasidic tradition, or am I totally off on a limb here? No, 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 you're absolutely right. In its origins, Hasidism was trying to restore a sense of joy and spontaneity to what had become a very rigid Jewish legal tradition in the 18th century. That's the origins of Hasidism. Today, it doesn't really serve that function. Today, it's much more of an ultra-Orthodox movement, very much similar to, uh, to other forms of Orthodoxy. Uh, so there are Hasidic stories and teachings that I will draw from in this book, uh, but uh, in general, it's going back even further, going back 2,000, 3,000 years ago to the Hebrew Bible, to the Talmud, and looking for the sources of happiness in those texts. 
And you also mentioned that you were drawing on some of the recent discoveries, and I'm assuming sort of these would be biological and neurological and psychological discoveries about happiness. Absolutely. And I, I wonder if, if – but you also see a parallel there with some of these more ancient ways of thinking about happiness and a, a fulfilled life. Could you maybe draw for us one or two of those parallels that you see just in a, in a recent discovery or a recent uh, claim that you see paralleling back in that way? Sure. I mean, perhaps the best is the notion of gratitude. There have been so many studies about the positive effects of expressing gratitude, be it writing in a journal in the evening, three things you're grateful for that day, or uh, tracking how many times we say thank you, and that correlating to a feeling of happiness. Uh, and, and these are studies that have been done the last five, ten years, and they're overwhelmingly indicative of how much gratitude adds to our life satisfaction. You go back to the Torah, the, 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 the name Judah, Yehuda, which is the name for the tribe of Judah, which is the basis of the Jewish people, Yehuda is from the same root as Toda, Yada, which means thankful, gratitude. And the notion of constant prayer is a form of gratitude, thanking God for the life that we live. So gratitude is a core religious emotion. It's built into prayer. It's built into Jewish life. And to cultivate gratitude is essential to happiness. So if we had simply followed some of the religious teachings of our history, we would have that sense of gratitude today. Uh, so gratitude is one of them. Uh, celebrating uh, rituals, uh, ritual marking, marking sacred moments of life has been shown to add to happiness. Uh, there's a, just a very recent study about uh, how we celebrate. Uh, do we choose certain moments to celebrate? Do we do it with friends and so forth? That, that can add to one's happiness. The importance of community and Judaism being a religion very rooted in community. All of these add to our sense of well-being. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Rabbi Evan Moffick. He's the senior rabbi at Congregation Solel in suburban Chicago, and he's the author of What Every Christian Needs to Know About Passover, Wisdom for People of All Faiths, and Judaism Demystified. We're talking today about his most recent book, What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Jewishness of Jesus, A New Way of Seeing the Most Influential Rabbi in History. If you want to find out more about Rabbi Evan Moffick and his work, you can do so at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. We'll be back in a moment. Each week we hear from listeners like you who write in to tell us that they love the show, and a lot of you ask us what you can do to help support us. Well, first of all, thank you for listening. The number one thing you can do to help support us is to tell your friends about the show. That word of mouth is so incredibly important. And if you listen to us through iTunes, there's a second thing you can do. They give you the means to give reviews to the show, and it would be fantastic if you took a moment to write a review for us. I hear five stars are very popular. You can also give us money. Earlier in the show, I mentioned that we work with the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. So many good things come from that partnership, but one of the best by far is that your donations are tax-deductible. You can find out more about supporting us at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com, and at csec.org, the website for the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Thank you for your support, and thank you, as always, for listening. We really do appreciate it. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Rabbi Evan Moffick. He is the author of the new book, What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Jewishness of Jesus. Well, Rabbi Moffick, a moment ago you were talking about Jesus and the early followers of Jesus being Jews in a Jewish context. What are some of the markers by which we know that Jesus was a good practicing follower of Judaism? Well, first we have when he's born, he's circumcised. That was a custom for male Jews in the first century and remains so today. At age 12, we have him going into the temple in Jerusalem and uh, debating with the priests. I suggest in the book it might have been his time of becoming a bar mitzvah. That's, that's speculation. There's really no evidence for that, but it's, it's around the same age. Third, he, he is involved in debates amongst the rabbis. We see, for example, I think it's in the Gospel of Luke, where... He and some followers are picking grains on the Sabbath, and some of the, the scribes say you shouldn't be picking grains on the Sabbath. That's not what we do on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, actually, King David 
picked grains on the Sabbath in order to eat, uh, and I'm following in that tradition. That's a very rabbinic debate. What is legitimate to do on the Sabbath? Uh, so there are all kinds of signposts throughout the Gospels of, of Jesus engaging in different arguments. One other thing that's, that's quite interesting, and I've talked about this in a recent lecture I gave in Milwaukee, there's a book that was written a few years ago called Jesus is the Question, the 307 questions Jesus asked and the three that he answered. So Jesus poses many more questions than he offers answers, and that is, again, a very Jewish custom to engage in questioning as a form of, of discovering the truth. Well, and you mentioned that, that Jesus engages in this tradition of questioning and response that is very much a marker of the rabbinic tradition. If we look at the texts that grow out of the Mishnah into the Gemara that eventually the, becomes the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud, you see collection upon collection of these back and forths between, between generations of rabbis. Yes. But that leads to a question that maybe Christians would want to know who are not familiar with that tradition of literature. Is Jesus mentioned in the Talmud? Is Jesus mentioned in Jewish literature? Is Jesus confronted at all as a figure after Christianity begins to split off? Or is it just a large realm of silence? It's generally a large realm of silence. There are a few scattered mentions of Jesus in the Talmud. Uh, Some scholars speculate there were at one time many more, but because of fear of anti-Semitism, those mentions were excised. And there are, again, a few scattered references, mainly as that man, uh, generally in a more antagonistic context rather than a citing him as a rabbinic figure and, and teacher context. In the 20th century, this is a fascinating area of literature, and some scholars have written about it, but there was a period of time when many Jews wanted to recover or reclaim Jesus as, as a rabbi who could teach Judaism. There was a very famous rabbi in Chicago by the name of Emil G. Hirsch, who was the rabbi of, of a Chicago Sinai congregation, and he believed that something like the parable of the Good Samaritan or the Sermon on the Mount could be taught in Jewish Hebrew schools, in Jewish religious schools, as a rabbinic text. He, he called Jesus the rabbi from Nazareth. Uh, So that, though, kind of never really took off. I think part of the reason was anti-Semitism was still very powerful and real, and the name Jesus was associated with Christianity and associated with anti-Semitism. So those efforts to reclaim Jesus as a Jew have never really grown, but I I anticipate they will continue to grow in, in perhaps have greater resonance in the years ahead, because... Much of what Jesus says in the original fits very much with rabbinic literature. I wrote a piece recently for the Huffington Post in which I argued that Paul was in many ways like a reform rabbi. Uh, Reform Jews do not believe that the law is binding, that we have to follow law, rather that the spirit and the ethics of the law are more important than the literal text of the law. Uh, Reform Jews don't believe we have to follow the dietary restrictions. And these were things that Paul introduced into Judaism, he still understood as Judaism, uh, in the first century. So there is a greater openness, I think, to that. But the, the important thing to always remember about Judaism is Judaism is not really a religion in the sense that Christianity is a religion. Judaism is a people, a culture, a philosophy, a way of life. And so the religious particulars are less important than the sense of belonging. And that is regardless of Jesus or Torah. It's simply a, a kind of, of identity more than a set of beliefs. Well, and as we're staying on the subject of the rabbis, uh, you draw a parallel in, in the middle of the book between the way that Jesus approaches teaching and the way that Jesus approaches sort of a philosophy of living and a rabbi named Hillel. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind telling our listeners, first of all, who was Hillel and why is he important? And then what are some of the parallels that you see between Jesus and Hillel? Hillel is one of the great rabbis, although he probably didn't have the title rabbi yet. It wasn't a a common title when Hillel was alive. Hillel was around the beginning of the Common Era, perhaps a little bit before the birth of Jesus, so that time period. And Hillel, one of his most famous sayings is, uh, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? If I'm only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? And so Hillel was a great teacher, had many students, and he constantly debated another 
leader, another rabbinic figure by the name of Shammai. And the two of them sort of symbolize two types. Hillel is the very flexible, open-minded, spiritual teacher, whereas Shammai is the more strict, literalist, conservative figure. And one example is uh, there's a story that a person who is interested in converting to Judaism comes to Shammai. And he says, Shammai, teach me the entire Torah while standing on one foot. Shammai says, that's a stupid question. Get out of my house. And, you know, we can understand his answer. That's a little rude to say your whole religion can be summarized while you're standing on one foot. Well, my, my religion is deeper than that. I can't summarize it for you that quickly. So Shammai sends him away. The same man goes and asks Hillel the same question. Summarize the Torah while standing on one foot. And Hillel says to him, What is hateful to you, do not do unto another. All the rest is commentary. Now go and study. So he gives a much more open, loving, affirming answer. And I think Jesus falls within that tradition, right? That the spirit, the meaning of the law, the the purpose of the law is greater than the literal text of the law. Although there are exceptions to that. There are other teachings uh, attributed to Jesus that take an opposite point of view. But I'd say the general thrust of Jesus' teaching is more in line with Hillel than with other rabbis of the time. Well, and what you just said about the standing on one foot, what is hateful to you, do not do to another, that sounds an awful lot like what Christians would characterize as the golden rule. Absolutely. When we're thinking about this context in which we've got traditions that are developing in parallel almost because, you know, Judaism develops as a a religion of the rabbis alongside the development of Christianity as a liturgical tradition with with priests and then with, with pastors. What are we to make of the fact that along the way certain parts get emphasized that are very similar but that are in total or in, in mostly in isolation from one another? Well, I think that's in some ways how religions evolve, right? I mean, for example, in Christianity, we have a great, there is a great emphasis on the afterlife, right? In Judaism, there, in the Talmud, there's a tremendous emphasis on the afterlife. But as the religions evolved, less emphasis was placed in Judaism on the afterlife, perhaps because so much emphasis was placed in Christianity on the afterlife. So some, sometimes things happen in religion for socio-cultural reasons uh, rather than theological reasons. And I think that's just a function of that, that religion is a historical phenomenon like, like everything else. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're having a conversation today with Rabbi Evan Moffick. He's the author of What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Jewishness of Jesus, A New Way of Seeing the Most Influential Rabbi in History. At several points in your book, you talk not only about the ancient rabbis, but also about contemporary scholars who are trying to explain Jesus in a historical context. And some of the names that come up would be Reza Aslan and John Dominic Crossan. And I wonder, first of all, if you could quickly characterize kind of what both of these thinkers are saying about Jesus and where you might disagree with them. Well, Reza Aslan argues that Jesus was a political zealot. That's the title of his most famous book, Zealot. And this is an old argument. Uh, Aslan's not the first to do it. It's been around for about 100 years. And the argument is that Jesus was a political revolutionary interested in overthrowing the Roman Empire and restoring the sovereignty of the kingdom of Judah the king, and the kingdom of Israel, the, the kingdom of the Jewish people. This is why the sort of messianism, the idea of sovereignty, my father is not the Caesar, my father is the God of Israel, and that Jesus inspired a revolutionary movement, and that's why he was put to death. Uh, There were many who made this argument about 100 years ago. The problem with it is that there's very little evidence for it. Uh, there, There are certainly political tensions at the time, but there's nothing that indicates Jesus was a leader among these political revolutionaries. In fact, there's a lot of counter evidence. John Dominic Crossan is quite interesting as a scholar. I, you know, he was, I think, the founder of the Jesus Seminar that ex- tried to examine which of the sayings attributed to Jesus could definitely be said to have been said by the historical Jesus. And, and what he did, it, he has a wonderful book on the Lord's Prayer that was 
quite useful for me in, in that he really looks at each line of the Lord's Prayer and talks about all its political, cultural resonances uh, of the time. He's very steeped in the sources. Uh, he definitely has a strong point of view. He sort of understands Jesus as a Mediterranean peasant leader, in a sense. He's, he's more interested in the economic revolution of Jesus, whereas Aslan's interested in the political revolution of Jesus, and others would be interested in the spiritual revolution of Jesus. So many scholars come to Jesus with their own agenda, and I think Crossan has a certain agenda, but he's also a tremendous scholar. Towards the end of the book, you, you deal with a number of rabbis that are trying to engage with Jesus. And, and certainly we don't have time to go through each of those five rabbis, but I wonder if you could just give us a couple of highlights in terms of what these scholars are saying about Jesus from a Jewish point of view. There's so much interesting stuff happening with how Jews understand Jesus. Now, the traditional explanation, if you to go to an average Jew on the street and say, what do Jews believe about Jesus?, someone would probably say he's not the Messiah, maybe they'd say he was a great teacher of Judaism. And that's a good answer. There's nothing wrong with that answer. But there is a lot of interesting scholarship happening. So perhaps what was most interesting to me that I hadn't heard before I started researching the question is Jesus as what we would call the Joseph Messiah or the first Messiah. And this was originally taught by an Orthodox rabbi named Yitz Greenberg. So this is not some ultra-liberal modern idea. This is something rooted in traditional orthodoxy that says Jesus was the first of a two-phased arrival of the Messiah. In a sense, Jesus prepared the way. Now, Yitz Greenberg calls Jesus a failed Messiah, not failed in a negative sense like he just couldn't get the job done, but rather the work Jesus did was incomplete that the the transformation was incomplete, that Jesus' function was to spread the idea of monotheism around the world via Christianity, and that second phase of the Messiah would be the reign of global peace. So I was not familiar with that strand of Jewish thought when uh, when I began researching the book, so I found that quite interesting. The other strands are Jesus as a social reformer, very consistent with 19th century Reform Judaism. Jesus as a tzaddik, a righteous person. This is a theology espoused by a a rabbi named Zalman Schechter Shalami, who is a neo-Hasidic rabbi, very influential. So there's a lot of great debate. In fact, uh, that that chapter originated in a piece I did for the Huffington Post about three or four years ago that really kind of went viral and helped spark the writing of this book. And I got many letters from from people in Israel and around the world uh, about that piece. Uh, So this this is an area in which I think there's great interest and scholarship and continuing discussion. Well, and I want to ask about that. What has been the response to this book, both from, I guess, Jewish people, but also from Christians who might be reading this? And um, have you gotten largely positive response? Has it been negative? Kind of what has the response been? Well, there's a range, and I, I expected that. In general, among Christians, it's overwhelmingly positive. Many Christians today are interested in exploring the Jewish roots of Christianity, are not in any way threatened or or suspect about a rabbi teaching them about the Jewishness of Jesus. So it's been overwhelmingly positive. There are a few people who say, well, what does a rabbi have to teach us? We know the truth already, and, and I'm not interested in what some Jewish guy has to say. So that's, that's sort of this old supersessionism, this old idea, well, I already know the entire truth. I don't need to learn anything more. But that's a very tiny minority. I mean, maybe a few. I don't think I've gotten any emails to that nature. There are a few Amazon reviews of that nature, but, but you know, you've got you to take those with a grain of salt. But so it's generally been overwhelmingly positive. And interestingly, I've spoken in pretty conservative evangelical churches, and I've also spoken in UCC, uh, United Church of Christ, and Unitarian churches, which are among the most liberal. And in all of those, uh, it's been a very positive reception. Uh, it's on the Jewish side... I've had a lot of people who, are, who love it, who are really interested in learning more about Jesus, but I didn't write the book for that audience. Uh, I have had a little bit of flack from some more conservative Orthodox rabbis who say, well, we really shouldn't be talking about Jesus at all. You know, I gave a lecture at a synagogue where people bought the book, and, and a guy afterwards, an Orthodox rabbi, said to me, why would you write a book about Jay? Jay did, he wouldn't even say the name Jesus. 
could only say J. So I think that, that that's, I expected that, so there is some of that, but in general it's been, it's been positive and encouraging, and I think some, of, some Jews who've read the book are very happy in that by helping restore G, uh, Jesus to a Jewish context, it couldn't help but increase appreciation of Judaism around the world. You know, to, there's been a rise of anti-Semitism, not in America, but in parts of Europe. And helping people learn more about Judaism and, and understanding Jesus as a Jew, someone who, who never left Judaism, can actually, you know, reduce the lingering supersessionism that still remains. Well, Rabbi Evan Moffick, I have really enjoyed this conversation, and thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Thank you, David. It's been a great honor. We've been speaking with Rabbi Evan Moffick. He's the senior rabbi at Congregation Solel in suburban Chicago. He's the author of several books, including What Every Christian Needs to Know About Passover, Wisdom for People of All Faiths, and Judaism Demystified. We've been discussing his most recent book, What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Jewishness of Jesus, A New Way of Seeing the Most Influential Rabbi in History. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. David Dalt engineered the show and did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, Kim Tron, and Alexander Badnock. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.